0: morning guys, why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the uh, Gospel Mark and uh, if you guys are new here we've been going through a series in the Gospel Mark um, and we're in chapter 8 today is what we're going to be taking a look at and we'll be reading kind of a very long passage of scripture, it's actually about 21 verses and when we read through it initially some of you might not see how it all kind of flows together uh, but I actually promise you it will all flow together and hopefully it all makes sense by the time we're done here today Um, But what I want to do to jump into this is we'll read it, and then once I'm done reading it, we'll pray, and we'll get to work on it. It's the story of Jesus uh, in another region of the area of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a Gentile region, meaning it's a non-Jewish area that Jesus has been doing some ministry at. We don't know exactly how long it would have been, maybe a couple days, a couple weeks, whatever. Um, But Jesus is in this area doing miracles, helping people, so on and so forth. And so that's basically where the story picks up at in chapter 8, like I said. Um, I'll start reading at verse 1, and we'll go down about verse 21, like I said, and we'll pray, and we'll get to work. In those days, when, again, the great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, and they called the disciples to him, and Jesus said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send the way hungry to their homes, they will be on their way, and they will faint. And some of them have come from a very far way. And his disciples answered him, and he said, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And then he said to him, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples and set them before the people, and they sat there, sat them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to those, uh, said to these uh, also should be set before them, and they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces and they left and the leftovers, and there were seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and then he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went over to the district of Dalmathua. And the disciples, or the Pharisees, sorry, uh, came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And then he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he says, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you that no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, and he got into a boat again, and he went to the other side. And now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they, had gotten, they only had one loaf with them. And then he, Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of the Herods. And they began discussing amongst themselves, one another, the fact that they had no bread. And then Jesus, who was aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves among the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And the seven... For the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you then take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? God, we ask you right now that you just help us to understand. Open our eyes. Help us to see. Open our ears. Help us to hear. God, we don't want to be people that just simply hear a Bible study, learn Bible lessons, but then go our way unchanged, unmoved. And the same people. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. So we commit this time. Commit our hearts. Commit the teaching of your word into your hands. And God, we ask that you would do a miracle. Open our eyes. Give us life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What we've been seeing so far in the gospel of Mark is Mark keeps retelling the story of Jesus. And one of the things you'll discover throughout the entire gospel account, but really actually in any of the gospel accounts, gospel accounts, Uh, gospel too, but gospel specifically. Um, uh, In all of the gospel accounts, what you'll actually discover is sort of this retelling the story of Jesus in a lot of different ways. I mean, you'll see Mark tell stories of Jesus healing people. You'll see Jesus um, uh, opening blind eyes. You'll see Jesus feeding 5,000 as it was referenced. You'll see Jesus in this particular territory amongst the Gentiles feeding 4,000 and so on and so forth. But each of these times, the repetition of these stories is another way of retelling the story of Jesus or the Jesus story. And the reason why Mark keeps retelling this story over and over again, because really at the end of the day, it's his intention, God's intention, ultimately overriding all of this, that we would get it, that we would see Jesus, that we wouldn't be amongst the ranks of the people that Jesus would say, don't you get it? I man, how much more do I have to do to you? How much more do I have to show to you? How much more do I have to reveal to you for you to actually get it? Mark really wants us to get it. God really wants us to understand him, to see him. This is the, this is the purpose behind the repetition of Mark and all the other rest of the gospel accounts, is he really wants for us to get who Jesus is. And the problem is, is that we have this tendency to be slow of hearing. We have this tendency to see what we want to see. And our real problem is that we keep going back to sort of seeing an image of a God that meets our standards. And we all have this problem. We'll take a look at this more in a second. But our problem is that we sort of are prone to fabricate our own God, to sort of cut and choose different types of pieces that we like about the real God. And yet what we do is we sort of cut and paste those things to this make-believe God that we really wish existed. The problem with that type of God, the problem with the designer Jesus that we're all prone to make all prone to design, is that when our lives hit the fan, that Jesus can't save you. That Jesus can't help you. Because, for one, He simply doesn't exist. Number one. Two, He's powerless. Because you made Him. You created Him. Rather than us recognizing the vastness, the greatness of the God who created us and desires for us to see Him, for us to know Him, a God that you create can't help you. And we're all prone to do this. We all do this in very subtle ways. And we'll get more in that in just a second. But what I want to do as we begin to sort of unpack the passages that we just read, like I said, it's a very long passage. I'm sure some of you are kind of like, okay, it's a long passage. I don't get it. And what I really want for us to see within this passage, because Mark, in short, talks about Jesus feeding his 4,000 people, and then the Pharisees asking for a sign, and then Jesus' disciples totally missing the mark, and thinking that Jesus is asking them about how come you didn't bring a loaf of bread, and then they're freaking out, and Jesus then begins to give them sort of these warnings. So what does all this have to do for us? What does God want us to learn out of this whole particular passage? And again, like I said, really at the end of the day, he wants us to see who Jesus is. So what I want for us to really kind of focus on, because the emphasis, no doubt in the text, has to do with spiritual hunger that we see within these people. So we'll take a look at three things this morning, kind of in the form of questions, The first question we'll take a look at or try to ask and answer is, what's our real true hunger? What's our real hunger? The second question is, what's our real problem? And then the third question we'll ask is, really, what's our real solution? What's the real answer that Mark's trying to drive us to, trying to direct us over towards? So first of all, what is our real hunger? And one of the things that we'll discover in the text, the first handful of verses, is we see Jesus in this distant land, like I already mentioned. It's in the land that was called uh, Gentile territory. It was in a por- portion of the land called the Decapolis. It was a part of Israel, part of the, actually part of Syria, more or less, um, but on the lower region, lower a lower, uh, southeastern region of the Sea of Galilee, called the Decapolis, or the region of the Ten Cities. This particular area, for the most part, was given over to the Gentiles. Even though it was ten regions, ten cities, hence the name Decapolis, uh, Jews had sort of folklore around the area. And Jews identified this region of the Decapolis as the region. This might get a little bit confusing for you, but I think it plays into the text in a second. Um, The Jews actually viewed this area, the Decapolis, as an area that was mentioned in the uh, story of the uh, book of Joshua, where Joshua talks about when the children of Israel came into land, there were seven nations that were driven out of the land or out of the region of Canaan. And these seven nations, like the Perizzites and Jebusites and... So, Canaanites, you guys, some of you Bible scholars or teachers and thinkers and students and all that, you can remember maybe some of those people. Well, according to the myth is that these seven tribes or nations were driven out to the southeast into the region that's called the Decapolis or known as the Decapolis, which plays in the storyline because at some point, Jesus is going to ask, hey, when I was in Jewish territory, how many baskets of bread were left over? Answer, remember? Because Remember? Paying attention? Good. Twelve. When Jesus, again, asked the disciples, when we were in the Decapolis, or the region of the Gentile territory, how many basketfuls of loaves were left over? Seven. So here's what I think what Jesus is probably saying. I'm the bread of life for both Jews, twelve nations, twelve tribes, and the Gentiles, the seven nations, the people that no one goes to. I'm the God of all of them. I'm the God who's come to... Lay my life down, not just exclusively for this small sect of exclusive Jews, but I've come to fulfill the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Adam, to Moses, to Israel itself, and through the Jewish people to go to all the nations, to bring eternal satisfaction to all the nations. What this does is it hints at the fact that there is a real hunger in all of us. So what we see is when Jesus is in this area of the Decapolis, you have literally 4,000 people following Jesus. Jesus' ministry obviously became very popular. But what to me is amazing is that this itinerant Jewish 30-something preacher experiences a level of success amongst a nation of people or nations of people that have a totally different story, totally different gods than the Jewish people. This is amazing to me, because the Gentile nations, non-Jewish people, their story was not the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their story was not the Torah. Their story was not found in the Ten Commandments. They weren't the covenant people of God. And to add other layers upon layers is that what you actually have are Gentile people who had just as much spite for the Jews as the Jews had spite for them. I'll give you an example of this. Every single time we see Jesus in this Gentile region, how many times do you see the religious leaders going head-to-head, toe-to-toe with Jesus? Never. Why? There are none. There are no religious leaders with Jesus entire Sidon, in the region of the Decapolis. Why? Because every good Jew viewed these areas as off-limits. They were unclean. See, the problem was is that they basically chopped the world up into wrong categories, just like we do. And oftentimes, the way that we tend to sort of divide or categorize the world up, we typically say the world is divided by the religious and the non-religious, the religious right and the liberal left, and, you know, Democrat, Republican. What Jesus basically says, and what the Bible is going to teach us, is that the way the world gets divvied up is really the holy and the unholy. Holy meaning capital H, holy. problem is, is that most religious people have their own definition as to what holiness is, and yet that standard of holiness is not the standard of holiness that God has. Some might be like, well, it's higher than God. No, it's actually far lower than God's. Even the Pharisees, far lower than God's. They were missing the mark entirely, even though they were focusing a lot of menial things like, you got to make sure you wash your hands before you eat dinner because you'll be unclean. God won't love you. God won't like you. God won't accept you, or we won't accept you. So here's the point that I want to make is this is you have 4,000 people, minimal, in this Gentile region who are completely outside of the storyline of the narrative of the people of Israel, and they're following Jesus. In fact, we're told that for three days they were out following Jesus, and they didn't have any food. So what we see with this group of people is these people actually placed a higher standard of value on Jesus than they did on their own mealtimes. They were willing to sacrifice food to follow Jesus. Why? There's only one answer I can think of. They can't take their eyes off of him. They're absolutely enamored by Jesus. They can't get enough of him. Again, like I said, these are people that are are not religious, per se, the way the Jews were. But what they have is a Jewish rabbi in his 30s coming to their territory who literally breaks all the traditional stereotypes of what Jews do in the ancient first century world. Because most Jews in the first century world didn't treat Gentiles with dignity, value, and respect. They didn't love them, didn't care for them, didn't honor them. And usually what would happen is that if you were a Jew and you had to, for some reason, go into Gentile territory, God forbid, is that when you would leave, you would make sure that you would shake the dust off your feet. Because you would not want to bring any type of defiled dirt into the Holy Land. They called it the Holy Land. Why? Because it was undefiled out there was defiled out there was wicked out there was dirty but inside here it's the holy land it's the holy space and we're the protectors of that is the way the religious leaders would have felt but here's jesus he comes into a gentile territory and he treats these people differently breaks all the stereotypes and radically challenges their understanding of what life is all about And they're so enamored by Jesus, they can't get enough of him. They follow him everywhere he goes. And this is the story of Jesus amongst these Gentile people and how he works with them, how he deals with them. But what we see is that this physical hunger that these people have really speaks of another hunger that is at the root of their heart. I mean, these people weren't just simply following Jesus to get something to eat. I mean, these are people that lived off of the land. They were an agricultural type of a community, an agrarian society. They knew how to farm. They knew how to raise cattle. They knew how to shepherd goats and sheep. They knew how to live off of the land. They didn't need Jesus to create any type of miracle or any type of meal for them. So they weren't necessarily looking to Jesus to somehow feed them. They were just blown away by who Jesus was, and they couldn't get enough of him. So what we see, again, like I said, is this hunger. What's really going on, why they're looking for Jesus, why they're following Jesus, is not because they're physically hungry. But there's another hunger that lay underneath the real hunger, or the real hunger that lay underneath the hunger of just food. And what the Bible's going to tell us all throughout is that this is the same way it is with all of us, that there is a true, deeper hunger, you can describe it as like a spiritual hunger that every single one of us have, that's always there inside of us. And yet the problem with regard to culture, problem with regard to all other ancient tribes, all other ancient peoples, all other modern peoples, is that rather than turning to God who designed us, God who made us, God who created us, to find our satisfaction, to find our peace, to find our life in Him, He designed us for Himself. He made us for Himself. As St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in You. Problem is that rather than turning to this God... We turn away from this God and we turn to substitutes. And we hope that somehow alternatives and substitutes will actually bring some level of satisfaction to us, but they always let us down. They can't satisfy us. And we've talked about this before. We'll look at more in just a second here. But what happens is we create these idols, these things in our lives. What, the way it typically works is we take good things that were created for us to enjoy and to worship God and we've turned, them into the, 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 we've turned them into something that they were not designed for. So let me give you an example of an idol that I have a propensity to actually bow down to in my own life. So this is Confessions of a Pastor time. It's my family. I absolutely love my family. I really strive, really desire, really want to be a good dad. It's the number one desire that I really have. I can take or leave the church. I love you guys. I love this church. I love doing what I do. It's a passion of mine but I don't want to fail as a father. I really want to be a good dad. And that's got good sides. It's got downsides because the downside is is if I fail, if I'm not doing things right, if things are not right all the time between me and my kids, my life can begin to become weak. I can fall into little pits of despair. The point of the matter is families are good. Being a good dad is good. Having a good family is a good thing. It was intended by God to be something that would bring glory to God. But that thing, as good as it is, can ultimately become an ultimate thing. In other words, I can design a family into something or offer myself to a family and hope that that family would supply something for me that it was never intended to create or never intended to satisfy. In other words, I I can turn my family into a substitute God. Bible's word for this is idolatry. And we do this all the time. For some, it might be a job. For some, it might be relationships. For some, it might be affirmation. For some, it might be approval. For others, it might be money. For others, it may be power. We have all sorts of little ways by which we do this. We take good things. We make them ultimate things, an ultimate value, and it begins to crumble us, destroy us. And so what we begin to see is that when this happens, we're really trying to fill our hearts with something That is never really intended or never really capable of actually bringing true satisfaction to us. I'll give you a couple examples of this. It's interesting. The uh, atheist writer said this once, John Paul Sartre. He says, there comes a time when one even asks uh, of Shakespeare and even of Beethoven, is uh, is that all there is? Isn't there more? It's kind of an amazing question. Because obviously he's taking the best writer and the best composer and he's like, as great as these guys are, as the most unbelievable masterpieces that they've actually given humanity, there comes a time when everybody who loves the writings of Shakespeare and loves the compositions of Beethoven at some point is like, is there anything else that these guys have written? Is there anything else that they've done? Because I've exhausted them. But the same can be applied to everything else in our lives. Let me give you an example. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there must be such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there must be such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. There must be such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I must have been made for another world. This is the idea. That all of our real hungers in this world are really just, in a lot of ways, signposts that point to the true spiritual hunger inside of us. That underlay all of these things. But the problem is is that we oftentimes try to satisfy ourselves in things that really can never satisfy. And at some point, they end up letting us down. And therefore, when they break, we break along with them. said this before. You are only as strong as the gods you worship or as fragile as the gods you worship. It's true. Here's another example. There's a lady by the name of uh, Naomi Wolf. She had written an article uh, that was put out in a magazine several years ago. It was called The Porn Myth. And what she does, she makes some observations upon our culture. I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not, but her observations are really insightful. Here's what she says. Again, like I said, the fact that we have all sorts of other cravings and desires and longings in this world that are not being satisfied within this world um, point to the fact that there's a deeper hunger... That lay at the heart of every single one of us. Here's what Naomi Wolf said. Sex is the wallpaper of our culture. That's a powerful statement alone as it is. Sex is the wallpaper of our culture. And then it goes on to say, does all the sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the porn industry and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between processed food, supersized portions, and obesity? If your appetite is stimulated and fed by poor quality material, it takes more junk to fill you up. People are not, are not closer because of porn, but further apart. And this imagery is a big part of that loneliness. So here's what I think Naomi Wolf is actually trying to say. She basically points out two very important elements within our culture. One has to do with sexual reality, is that the porn industry has recognized that there's an insatiable drive in all of us, the sexual drive. And so what they've done is they've exploited it. And they've Uh, promoted it, and they've advertised it to the point where, obviously, I think the way she put it, sex is the wallpaper of our culture. And I think we would all probably agree with that. No matter what you do, wherever you go, any web searches you have, anything, there's always some form of sexual uh, exploitation everywhere we look. It is the wallpaper of our culture. But the problem is what she's basically saying is that even though sex is everywhere, it's pervasive, We as a culture of human beings are not more liberated with sex, meaning we don't desire it more, long for it more in a nice, helpful, building up societal way. In fact, what's happened is the very opposite has taken place. We've become bored. And what's taken place is in the hearts of men, for example, they look at other women who have been rewired in their minds in terms of looking at women, they realize that A a human being, an actual real live woman that's sitting across the table from them does not have anything of which to compare or compete with a woman that's in porn. And so a guy grows tired. And it can happen even with women as well. And so what happens is we as a culture are feasting on something that doesn't exist, hoping that will satisfy, but in the end it leaves us less satisfied and more lonely. But she also makes a connection with that of the food industry as well, which is kind of an interesting study. I've been watching a lot of shows lately about the food industry and health and so on and so forth. Maybe some of you guys have been watching this in the news. But recently, uh, if you've been watching this, you realize that um, I think it was they just recently passed a law that basically said that if schools didn't want to order meat that had this stuff called pink slime in it, which I'll explain in a second, Um, They don't have to order it, okay? Some of you might be like, "What's pink slime. Some of you may be familiar with the news articles. But here's what it is, all right? You ready? No, you're not, but I'm going to tell you anyhow because it's my job. (laughs) Pink slime is basically this, I think it's pink slime or pink foam, pink slime, right? I think it's slime. That's what I thought. Okay. Uh, I should never second guess myself. But the point is, anyways, back on track. What pink slime is, it's this stuff that basically once you're done cutting off all the meat off of the cow, you've got the bones and the ligaments and arteries and all sorts of nastiness that's still left over. And sometimes it's commingled with, like, bowel nastiness, and it's filthy, it's dirty, it's got bacteria in it. So what they do is they grind it up into this nasty pink foam, all right? But it's got bacteria in it. So what they do is they got to actually give it a bath in some sort of ammonia. So they soak it, saturate it in ammonia, which the FDA says it's safe, and what they do is they take this stuff and they put it as a filler into your ground beef. Because your ground beef is not big enough as it is, and so what they do is they want to like add this foam to make the ground beef a little bit bigger, and that way they, when they charge you 99 cents, 2.99, whatever it is, a pound for ground beef, you, you're not only getting ground beef, but you're also getting this, this additive, this filler that has ammonia in it because they can do that. And so the point of the matter is, is that we live in a culture that something's happened in the food industry over the past 50 years. We've become very good at making very cheap food, but the problem is, a lot of it's not food and we as a culture this is so many studies have been done on us lately that our culture as a whole has become 25 pounds fatter than ever in history and they've also discovered something else every other culture that has adopted a western diet has also become fatter I've witnessed this firsthand I went to China a few years ago I saw tons of young kids eight years old very large kids Most Asian people are not very large. They're very skinny. They have a very healthy diet. But the younger generation, very large, very oversized. And what the article is basically saying, because some of you are like, are we going to talk about sex and food? No, this is not at all what I'm trying to talk about. But what I'm trying to say is this, is that in the culture in which we live in, we think that by eating this type of food, we're actually adding more nutrition and more value to our culture, but we're actually killing ourselves. We're becoming fatter. We're having more diseases added to us. We're killing ourselves. Eating, imitation, junk. But the same is true with the sex industry. We think that we're actually adding something to our culture by feasting on something that is supposedly beautiful, but in reality, it's a fake beauty. It's a parody of beauty. It doesn't exist, and it's actually numbing us to reality. The same is true spiritually. That when we turn from god we will always look for alternatives cheap alternatives anything that will satisfy us and what happens is we begin to sort of prostitute ourselves away we give ourselves away very cheaply because we're desperately looking for something to satisfy those hunger pangs spiritually and it never does the more we try the more we search the more we sample, the less satisfied we are, the more defiled we feel, the more lonely we become, the more exiled, more lost, more stuck, more enslaved we become. The Bible describes this path really as a path of sin, self-destruction. So we've got to really understand, first and foremost, what's our real hunger? I think our real hunger, obviously, it simply boils down to the fact that Jesus is the one that wants to come and... Satisfy us that our real hunger is a spiritual hunger. Problem is though that we always are looking for these spiritual substitutes. It's kind of a funny thing, but in reality, one of the stupidest gambles in all the world really is that we constantly are looking for something to pay off, but it never pays off. After trillions and trillions of failures, attempts, and failures, a hundred percent failure rate, <laughs> the reality is. That This is one experiment. The more we keep trying, the more foolish we actually become. It doesn't satisfy to give ourselves away to false gods. OK, what's the real problem then? What's the real problem? This' is where we got to try to get some more answers here. Um, Jesus is going begin to begin to uh, begin to kind of unpack for us what some of the problems are. And the way he does this, begin about verse 15, verse 17 and 20 uh, and 21, he's going to tell us some statements. He's going to do this in a way of basically a command. And then, essentially, seven questions. So, now, you got a you picture in your mind. Jesus is done in the region of um, the Decapolis with his disciples. They hop on a boat, um, and they go to another area, and the religious leaders confront Jesus, uh, which, by the way, is just kind of an interesting fact to me. Um, you know, where's the religious leaders at? Well, they're certainly not in the area where the people who need help the most are at, because that's what religious people do. Religious people love to wait for people that aren't doing things the way that they think they are doing, and they want to just criticize. That's what the religious people are doing. Whereas Jesus, he's where the people are that need help. Religious people they're waiting for Jesus to get back so they can criticize Jesus a little bit more. So Jesus, with his disciples, come across to the the religious leaders. They ask Jesus for a sign. Uh, Jesus says, "I'm not going to give you a sign." Uh, Jesus gets into a boat again with his disciples. And while they're going across, Jesus makes a comment to them or a command to them. He says, you guys, you need to beware of the leaven, of the scribes, of the Pharisees, and of the Herodians. So the disciples are a little bit kind of taken back by this. Because in their mind, again, Mark tells us that these guys only brought one loaf of bread. So here's what's happening, I think. In their minds, the disciples, they're like, oh, my gosh. Um, we only have one loaf of bread, and Jesus wants a sandwich. How are we going to feed everybody? And they're, they're like freaking out. They're like, oh, my gosh. Like, I thought you were going to bring the loaf of bread. I thought you were going to bring more loaves of bread. You idiot. You know, and they're freaking out because nobody has a loaf of bread. Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? I told you, I talked with you, I commanded you to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. And you guys are talking about leaven of bread. All right, what's leaven? Leaven is basically uh, yeast. That's what it is. It's, it's a fungus. And the way that it would work is they would sort of uh, need this... Uh, this yeast into the bread, and they would let the bread set, and the bread would rise. So what would happen is, is as the yeast would make its way into the bread, it would then permeate the entire loaf, and the entire loaf would be affected by it. So what you're doing by way of adding leaven or yeast into the bread is you're actually changing the fundamental makeup of the loaf of bread itself. So it's becoming something entirely different than what it was at the beginning. Probably a modern-day equivalent for us would be like cancer cells. If Jesus were to be living today, I mean, a lot of us are like carb-free. We're like, bread is of the devil, like gluten-free. Don't eat bread, you know. So Jesus perhaps today would have been like, all right, then beware of the cancer cells of cancer. You know, they, they they will destroy you. And so the idea is that cancer starts off in the body. And if it's caught early enough, you can eradicate it. But if it's not caught soon enough, or if it's very aggressive, it then begins to make its way throughout your entire body to the point where your body can't function properly. Your body becomes something different other than what it was originally created to to be and function in an entirely different way than it was actually created to function. And then you end up dying. That's what happens with cancer. This is why cancer is horrible. But the same idea, what Jesus is trying to say, is that there is a spiritual form of cancer. And it's like leaven it comes into your heart. It begins to permeate you. It begins to fundamentally change who you are, the way that you think, the way that you act, the way that your agendas are being lived out. So Jesus is warning his disciples, beware of these things. And then he basically poises these uh, several questions to them. And I'll go through it very quickly. He says this, Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but don't hear? Do you not remember? When I took up the five loaves, of the 5,000, the baskets full, how many did I take up? Obviously twelve. What about of the 4,000? How many did I take up? Seven? Final question Jesus asked, do you guys not yet understand? So Jesus, in a lot of ways, is sort of warning them. But what he does, he actually takes, so to speak, the position of a prophet. The third question you see right there is actually a very important passage that's all throughout the Old Testament. And all the major prophets actually allude to it or actually state it. So if you look at those verses, you actually see uh, the, 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 the almost verbatim, the words that Jesus himself uses. Even in the Psalms, this actual phrase appears. And what Jesus, I think, is basically doing with his disciples is he's causing their minds. What I've told you before, there's a, there's a lot of times when Jesus speaks, when Jesus talks, he talks in what we describe kind of in modern-day language as like hyperlinks. You know, on a website, you see like a hyperlink. You click that, and it'll take you someplace else. Well, Jesus talked like that a lot, where he would say something, and it was a hyperlink. And it was always intended... To take the minds of his disciples back to a reference scripture somewhere in the Old Testament. And this would have been a scripture they would have been familiar with. And every single time in the Old Testament, a prophet would come on the stage and say to Israel, um, a reference to this. They were always talking about a warning to, the, uh, to, to Israel as a nation, saying, you guys need to be careful. Because what's happening is you guys are on a path to becoming like the idols, like the gods you worship." Again, it's a reference actually to idolatry. So I'm going to try to break this down for you very quickly. Idolatry, we oftentimes have misunderstandings about this in our culture because typically when we think of idolatry, we think of something that was done by primitive cultures. We think of people that would bow down to a, you know, a statue of, a, of an ox and we would, you know, would say, well, we would never do that. I mean, we don't, we don't worship an ox. We don't worship cows and statues of gold so on and so forth. And sometimes I think we actually insult our ancestors by thinking they actually worship a statue. They didn't. And I want to tell you what they actually did. What they did is they had values. They had values. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that your tribe, let's say 20,000 strong, tribe. Tribe of people living somewhere in the desert or in the wilderness of Israel. And your ultimate value, the thing that you value, the thing that your men value, the thing that your men paint onto the shields, paint on their faces when they got out to battle, is is the image of a cow. Did they worship a cow? No. They worship what the cow stands for. Where does a cow stand for? Where does a cow speak of? What does an ox speak of? Right? Let me let me press this further, okay? Uh, in ancient culture, an ox was absolutely essential. You needed it to plow your fields because you're too weak to do it yourself. Right? So you go out and buy cows, you yoke them in, and you get these big cows or big oxen, and they yoke and they yoke together and they pull. Uh, the plow, to plow your fields. An ox or a cow spoke of a value of strength and might. What about an eagle, right? Maybe, again, power, valor, um, courage, or a lion. So all of these pictures or all of these images were merely just images that someone in the tribe came along and said, you know what? You know what depicts strength better than anything? An ox. Let's paint that on our forehead. Let's tattoo it on our legs. Let's put that on our shields. And this culture had this image of a cow that was identified as sort of their god. But the idea behind it was that they ultimately valued the strength that's depicted through the cow. So the ultimate value, for example, of that culture may have been strength or power or valor or pleasure. And that became the ultimate value. So here's the thing. Let's say you're this tribe that ultimately values might, and there's another tribe down the way that poses a threat to you. Knowing that your God is, is, is power and might, do you go out and make diplomatic arrangements with them? Especially if you know that you're stronger than them? No. You crush them. You crush them. You oppress them. You send your warriors in there, and you kill them. You rape their children and kids and moms and wives, and you totally oppress this foreign culture because you can. Because your gods are power and might, and they lead you to demonstrate power and might in everything you do. So here you are living in this tribe or this culture that values and honors might, and you go through a tough time. Let's say you're like Job. You've lost everything, your wife, your kids, your everything. And you go to like the tribal leader, like I'm going through a tough time and kind of crying a little bit, like life's hard for me. And do you think a tribal leader will be like all tender and sensitive to be like, oh, it's okay, bro. Like group hug, you know, let's get the other elders together. Just group hug on you. you know, like, no, like that guy would look at you and be like, suck it up. Like we've got battle scars. These are your scars. Stop crying. There's no compassion in love in a tribe of people that deify power and might. So here's the point. These people that worship might and power become like the gods they worship. Eyes they have, they don't really see. They don't see the knees of the hurting. Hearts, in some sense, they, have, they don't have any compassion. They're not caring or hurting or, or, or troubled for the marginalized, the dif- people that are going through difficulties in their life. All they value is might and power. But the same is true for all of you, all of us. We all have things in our culture that we deify and value, and they become ultimate value systems for us. I would say one, perhaps, for our culture, among many, is maybe our understanding of beauty. I'll give you an example, and this sometimes affects, a lot of times, women more than guys, but it can affect guys as well in different ways. But say, for example, if you take like in Aphrodite or the way they would have worshipped years ago, Aphrodite, a statue of a goddess. In our culture, we would just simply look at it as beauty. You would expect to see images of beauty everywhere. Well, do we see images of beauty everywhere? Everywhere. Like, go to the store. Every magazine in the stand is always a picture of a movie star or a singer who's beautiful, or at least that's the depiction of beauty. And these are the images that we look at and we say this is ultimate Ultimate value. You've got to look beautiful. You've got to have sparkly white teeth. You've got to have perfectly perky chests. You've got to have the nicest clothes. You've got to have the ripped abs. You've got to have everything that looks perfect because if you don't, then you've failed the system. you failed the value, and you will not be desired by anybody. So what happens? The gods speak. The people listen. Especially, for example, women that might be under the reins of this God, and they live desperate lives trying to look beautiful and always feeling as if they failed, full of despair. That's what false gods do. They leave us feeling full of despair. They leave us broken because that's what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, any other agenda that you yoke yourself into, any other ideas that you try to fabricate about who I am about what I'm doing other than the ones that I've established will ultimately lead you to a place of destruction and devastation. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, beware the leaven of the the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees wanted a God that would honor their rules and regulations and keep them in power. The Herodians had a very similar idea. Herod was sort of a dynasty that had been around for several uh, many years, over 50 years or so. And Herod was this powerful king, very corrupt king kind of semi-Jewish, had some sort of Jewish sympathies and whatnot, but really he just loved himself and he loved power and Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven, beware of the rottenness that is at play within the hearts of the Pharisees and the Herodians and what Jesus then turns to his disciples and he asks them, are you guys blind? Do you have eyes? Do you have ears but you don't hear? What's going on? You all got to be careful and I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples very clearly is something that can overextend each one of us do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but don't perceive what God is saying? And I think the real information that we've got to wrestle with is this, is that do we hear Jesus saying things, saying things to us, speaking things to us, but in reality we wish they were something else? We want a God that's after our image. We want a God that doesn't contradict us. We want a God that would allow us to live the life that we really want to live without having to bend our knees to Him. That's the problem. We're all in danger of that. The problem with Serving any other false God is even though it may start out with empty promises to satisfy, but it can't ever truly fully satisfy. Because, like we talked about hunger, our true spiritual hunger is not a physical hunger. Our true hunger is a spiritual hunger that physical things really can't satisfy. There's another hunger that lay underneath the real, clear hunger that oftentimes we turn to and try to satisfy. And it's a spiritual hunger that Jesus says can only be satisfied. By me. This brings us to the final point. I'm done. It's really this question of like, what's, what's really our final solution? Because when we look at the fact of the problem, for the disciples, the real problem was not a problem of information. It wasn't that they didn't have enough information. The real problem for the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't have enough signs, miracles, wonders. So can kind we of live in this false assumption that if we just had more miracles, if God just gave me a dream. If God just showed up one day on my front doorstep, you know, with a message from God, or an angel appeared to me downtown and just spoke to me, if I heard an audible voice come out of the heavens, if I saw the sky part and clouds line up in some sort of message, then I would believe God. I would trust him. I would give myself to him. But here's what Jesus is saying. No, you wouldn't. Because the real issue, the real problem is not information or lack of it. Hardness of heart. This is absolutely astounding because for us today, we have extensively more information about Jesus than even disciples did. We have a completed Bible that speaks to us. We've got letters written by people that weren't even around really doing anything Jesus' day. We've got so much more that God gives to us. So our real problem is not that... I don't have enough information. I need more signs, miracles, wonders. The real problem is that our hearts are hardened. What Jesus says about himself, we're not satisfied with. So I was kind of thinking about this with the disciples. I think the real problem or the point of problem for the disciples was not so much of the power of Jesus. Because, I mean, think about this. These guys have seen Jesus do a miracle with 5,000, with 4,000. So I don't think the real issue is problem. So here's Jesus with his disciples amongst 4,000 Gentiles. So I don't think the problem is here they are on a boat with one loaf of bread, and they're like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to have dinner with one loaf of bread? And here's Jesus. What are we going to do? I mean, they know. I think they can realize, like, Jesus' meal right now. Is that cool? Like, can you make that for us right now? Like, Jesus can snap his fingers, and bam, there'd be a meal, right, instantaneously. So I don't think it was an issue of problem with power. I I think their hang-up was with purpose. In the context, with purpose, Jesus is in Gentile territory. And the Jews, Jesus' disciples since youth have been trained. It's part of their DNA, spiritual DNA, that Jews, good guys. Gentiles, bad guys. Jews... God's favorite people. Gentiles, kindling for God's barbecue. Jews, God's beloved ones. Gentiles, God hates. And here's what Jesus is saying to them in essence. I will lay my life down, and I will rescue Gentile people. The same way I will lay my life down, and I will rescue Jews. I think his disciples are like, say what? Like, that's not possible. Like... That doesn't fit our view of God. Like God doesn't come and rescue those wicked people out there because, you know, I mean, Rabbi so-and-so and mom taught me this, and grandpa always talked about how the, you know, Gentile people over there are so bad. And, you know, they they eat pork and you know, they don't wash their hands before they eat chili. And how 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 could God rescue such wicked, profoundly evil people? And Jesus is like, same, I'm gonna rescue you. Their problem was not with the power of Jesus. It was with the purposes of Jesus. The real problem for us is not information. It's hardness of heart. We don't want to believe what Jesus has to say. Because I think all of us, at the end of the day, we realize, if what Jesus says is true, that may require something from me that I really don't want to give up. If Jesus is true, then that means that he is my security and not my money. If Jesus is true, then that may mean I may need to release my money. I may need to let go of my money. I may need to let go of some of my assets. I may need to sell some things, give it away to the poor. But let me tell you something. If you see your money and your possessions as your means of security, then that by definition is your God. If Jesus is God, if he's king, if he is who he says he is, and he says, I'll forgive you. We love that message. We're like, yes, I'm forgiven. This is awesome. I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die. But if Jesus is true, the message is going to go even further, even down, deeper to the point where he's going to say, so therefore as I've forgiven you, forgive others. We may have to actually give up things that we don't want to give up so the issue is not information it's hardness of heart the disciples were in danger just like Herod and the religious leaders the final thing I'm done is this what's our real solution in short the answer is Jesus Obviously, it's always gonna be Jesus but my point is this is that what we need to really be able to see is that we have to find him trustworthy we have to place confidence in him. We have to see him as worthy of trust. The problem is, a lot of times, we don't have that on our radar screen. So, what you need to be able to see is the picture that Mark is trying to portray for us. And the picture that Mark's trying to say is that what we have in Jesus, really, even set before that, what we have in us is we have people that are spiritually hungry. But the flip side of that is in verse 2, Jesus looks at the groups of people and he says, I have compassion on them. This is the only time in the entire Bible that it's actually spoken of Jesus in first person in which he says, I have compassion. There's other gospel account writers that will say, Jesus had compassion. It's written in third person. Only time ever Jesus himself records of himself, I have compassion on the people. So what you have is a host of people saying, We have needs we're hungry, we're lost, we're lonely, we're defiled. And here's Jesus saying, I have your counterpart because I have compassion. And what Mark wants us to see and what you need to see is that this Jesus left paradise. He left heaven. He was in the Father's presence. In the Father's presence is fullness of joy. He left that place of fullness of joy. He left that place of security, of comfort, of love, of home. He left it. Came into this world to a bunch of people that have literally sold themselves off as their own exiles. And Jesus became the ultimate exile so that you who are exiled by your sin and by your defilement by our wickedness, can be brought home. To the degree that you see that, to the degree that you believe that, you'll be changed. Your heart will be fundamentally different. You can't go on living the same life if you believe that. If you believe that there is a God that actually has compassion on you and knows where you've gone, knows what you've done, knows how you've defiled your life, knows how that you have actually, by your own sin, worked your way into a status of loneliness and brokenness and exile to the degree that you see that that God left His comfort, security, love, life and came into this world to rescue you, you'll be forever changed. How can you doubt not only the power but also the purposes of a God that would travel so far, go to such extents to rescue you? That's what you need to see. We're going to sing. We're going to finish up with a song of worship. We're also going to finish up, if you'd like, we have communion in the back. You're more than welcome to partake of that. We say this weekly, but if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to not partake of communion. The reason why we do that, there's a lot of things we can do together as a, as a, as a big group. We can sing songs together. We can hear God's word together. But communion is something that we do as a family. And if Jesus is your Savior, you're in that family. You can partake of the communion. Someone's phone's ringing right now. You can partake of communion and meet with Jesus, and it's a powerfully beautiful picture of what he's done for us, and I want you to know that. I want you to see that. I want to welcome you to trust this Jesus, to worship him, to honor him, to cast your cares upon him, to recognize that he's a God that has gone to such extent to rescue you, meaning... Is there anybody else in this whole world that you can trust compared to Jesus? That's the point. No one else in this life would go through the events or the things that Jesus had gone through. No one else. So if he did that for you, is he not worthy of your trust? God, right now we just want to confess sin to you. We want to confess our hardness of heart. We have it. It's always there. But God, what we need are new hearts, changed hearts, and I pray, God, right now that you set us free, cause us to see the beauty of Jesus, the power of Jesus, to trust the purposes of Jesus. We want to cast idols down before you, and we just, God, we want to confess that these things have let us down, they've left us defiled, they've left us broken and see, Jesus, that you are a God that has come to us, has rescued us. You've been exiled so that we who are exiled can become brought home. So God, just stir affection in our heart for you, love for you, emotion for you, thoughts of praise for you, sing to you.